Thanks, AJ. Y'all good? Good morning. Welcome to Citadel Square. Hey, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Let me tag what AJ just said. Uh, you know, in the midst of your discovering uh, what God may have for you here at Citadel Square, we believe that your spiritual life is incredibly important. That's why we talk about taking six weeks uh, to discover, is this the church for me? Uh, do they uh, align with kind of what God is calling me to do? Do I align with what God is calling them to do? And that's a, it's a very intentional decision that every single Christian makes to join a church and to begin to serve and discover God's purposes for them and how they can align their life to what God is doing in a local church. So if this is, if you have come to six weeks and you go, ah, this is just not the church for me, we would love to have that conversation with you. We are uh, about at Citadel Square building God's big K kingdom, not our little K kingdom. Uh, if this is not the church for you, we'd love to help connect you with other churches in the city that are gospel preaching, Jesus loving, God serving churches. So uh, if you want to have that discussion, our staff team, uh, any of the guys here would be love to, to have that conversation with, with you and help um, you plug in to what God is doing in the city of Charleston. So that's our heart. We want to be about what God wants to do in this city and align our purposes and our church to those things. So, all right. If you're new, we have been in a study of the book of Revelation. If you're not, then you know where we're going to go today. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Again, if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Go ahead, take it and read it till the cover falls off, and then come back and get another one. We'll give you another Bible, uh, and you can take and have that one as well. Um, so go ahead and grab that. Turn to the book of Revelation, which if you're new to navigating the scriptures, is all the way on the right side of the book. Probably the easiest book to find in your Bible is the first one and the last one. Uh, so turn with me to Revelation chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. Revelation chapter 7. Uh, let me tell you where we've been as we pick up this story here. <clears throat> Uh, Revelation 7 is in the midst of the Lamb of God opening the seals. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 about the revelation of Jesus Christ and about his church. Chapters 4 and chapter 5 look at worship of God as creator who has the right to judge all that he has created, to cleanse it from sin, and to judge the sin upon this planet. And Revelation chapter 5 is the story of the Lamb uh, and the Lamb being worthy of the worship uh, of Revelation chapter 4 as well by virtue of what he has done to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Revelation chapter 5 says uh, that you were slain to ransom people from everywhere on this planet. And then we saw the beginning of the end in the opening of the seals where the lamb goes and takes the, the scroll from the hand of the one who sits on the throne, the ancient of days, and he begins to open the seals. And we've made our way all the way up until right before the seventh seal. The seventh seal will be opened in Revelation chapter 8. And what will follow is the seventh seal is opened, and then you have the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is blown, and you have the seven bowls. And all of that is how the movement of the book progresses in its chronology. But one thing we said last week is that even though you see chronology of the end happening in the book of Revelation, where the book of Revelation takes these biblical themes and ties a nice bow on it at the end. It takes all of these ideas and themes and examples and stories and moves them into one singular spot to where the last chronological verse in your Bible is in Revelation chapter 22, where they shall reign forever and forever. 
Amen. That the book of Revelation takes you into eternity future. So if you're going to read your Bible and understand God, man, sin, redemption, Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and all of the consummation of his kingdom, you need a Bible that begins with in the beginning and ends with forever and ever. Amen. And that's what you have in your hand. So not only do we have chronology, but we also have biography that we have people that are put on display and drawn out for us to see what God is doing with people during that time. And we got to Revelation chapter 7, and we saw our first chronological vignette, or I'm sorry, biographical vignette of these people where you have the nationally resurrected and restored Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, to where you have 144,000 who are sealed on this day uh, at this time to be 144,000 Apostle Pauls, that they are launched out to be uh, missionaries, evangelists, preachers, teachers. And what you're going to see here today in Revelation chapter 7 is the result of their ministry. We started in heaven with the martyrs in chapter 6 who are underneath the throne crying out to God, how long, O Lord, until you judge the blood that has been spilled, that we have spilled, and how long until you will pour out vengeance upon the earth. And then you move to earth, and you had the earth dwellers in Revelation chapter 6, where these folks were on earth, and they see the sky roll back like a scroll, and they say, hide us from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the answer to that question is Revelation chapter 7. You're going to see two groups of people. The first group of people was last week who are standing on earth. And the second group of people you're going to see today are standing in heaven. That they are the result of this preaching ministry. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that uh, the gospel must be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And that's what's happening here in Revelation chapter 7. Now, let me, but with that background, let me introduce this text a little bit. Uh, if you have a smartphone, would you raise your hand just for a minute for the sake of this illustration? 98% of you in here have a smartphone. I want you to think as we begin about the least used app on your phone. Okay, you got it? I know what mine is. The least used app on my phone, why they made this app, I don't know. If you are in the world of making apps and your responsibility is to make this app, I would suggest you begin to make other apps. But the app on my phone that I use the absolute least is the compass. Why they put a compass into my phone for me to open and to use in an app makes zero sense to me. Uh, I am not that outdoorsy, as many of you know. I'm more of a ruggedly indoorsy individual. I get outside and I find the, the gnats and the bugs and the mosquitoes and the allergies and the, all of that. And I go, indoors is great for me. Uh, but when you have, I'm told, okay, so if you are, if, have you ever used a real compass? Who has used a real compass? Wow. See, you are far more educated than the people in the first service. I think you had one person who'd heard of a compass and then searched it on their phone, right? So you have used a compass. So if, if I get this illustration wrong, you have the right to come up and correct me. I will receive the instruction at your hand. But I am not into orienteering, because like I said, I just am not, you know, outdoors is good for a little bit, to make it to the car, and then to the other box that I work in indoors. Uh, but a compass helps you with a couple of different things. A, a compass helps you orient where you are. 
that a compass is able to give you information about where you are. And also the compass is able to give you appropriate direction, right? That, that with a compass, knowing where you are and then knowing where you want to go, you are able to orient yourself to that direction. And the truth of the gospel for us as a church is a lot like that. That when we come to the knowledge of the fact that we have fallen short of the glory of God and that God is holy and we are not and we are sinners and, can there, and no matter what we do, we cannot reestablish a relationship with God, then we are oriented to the true nature of our condition, are we not? And the gospel message comes in to tell us that sinners can actually stand in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for them. That Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, takes my sin upon himself, takes the judgment that I am due, gives me his perfect life by faith, and now brings me to heaven to present me, as Ephesians 5 says, pure and spotless of any stain whatsoever. And that now I live this life in the body, Paul says in the book of Galatians, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me and gave himself for me. And then Paul goes on to say in the book of Galatians that we now walk by the Spirit, that we have a direction to our lives so that we understand as we journey through this life and this journey of faith that our life has certain directions to it where we begin to say yes to some things and no to others. There are left turns we don't take and right turns we do to follow the Spirit in the lives that we're called to. But a compass does no good for you, and the gospel really does no good for you if you, all you have is orientation and direction because what you need and what I need in what the compass provides is I need a destination. I need a time where I will no longer need the compass, right? Because once I reach my destination, I don't need the compass anymore. The compass has served its purpose. And what you're gonna see in Revelation chapter seven today is the destination. You're going to see where we're all headed, where we all are arriving. If you have come in today and you go, God, I believe who you are, I believe in what Jesus has done for me, but I can't make sense of this life and where I am now. I know I'm going to heaven, but what does that mean? What are the promises in the gospel that can actually help me to live life on this planet appropriately? And I want to tell you, just before we get started, the promises of God in this text it will blow your mind that the gospel is simple, that I bring my sin to God and Jesus takes it and gives me his perfect life and will forever and always secure me and bring me into the presence of God. That's that beautiful picture. But it's, there's more to it than that because God is better in that story than maybe you've ever considered. And you're gonna see that here in Revelation chapter seven, all right? So let's pray, ask God for his grace and we'll, we'll jump in here together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. The Psalms say that the unfolding of your word gives light. May you do that here for us this morning. For those who come in from every kind of background, who are trying to understand who you are and what you're doing in and through the gospel in their lives, I pray that this text would give great encouragement. That we, as we study it, might be formed into the image of Jesus Christ. Would we leave here with a greater worship in our hearts, a greater passion to tell others about the story of Jesus Christ? That our sins can be forgiven, that we can be, be restored to right relationship. 
For those who come in and are despairing and discouraged, I pray that your word would give them great comfort, that they would see you maybe in a new way than maybe they've ever seen before. So Father, bless us as we look into your word, as we study, as we think, and may all that we do here be done for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, Revelation 7, we're gonna start in verse nine and we'll work all the way down to the end of the passage. Y'all ready? You good? Say yes. All right, let's go. Now you're excited. Look at verse nine. After this, this is how Paul, uh, Paul John, this is how John in the book of Revelation moves the visions forward. It, it's a hint for you as you read to understand that there are two distinct visions between Revelation 7, 1 through 8, and 9 through 17. So after this, here's the next vision John receives. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now, if you read that up to this point, you're thinking to yourself, well, we just saw a very specific number of people, didn't we? And this would be a contrast to what we've seen in 7, 1 through 8. We saw a specific number of 144,000 ethnic Jews who are sealed by God on the planet for his purposes in the last days. And now as we move to heaven, we're going to see a different number of people. Only this number of people cannot be counted. That John seems to be overwhelmed by the massive amount of people that uh, are in heaven around the throne. And look at what they're, what the, how this group of people is described. A great multitude that one, no one could number. Two, let's see what their makeup is. They're from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Keep your finger in Revelation 7 and go back one page. Do you see uh, Revelation 5, verse 9, as we look at the worthiness of the Lamb? This phrase is used almost identically in 5, verse 9, to attribute the Lamb's work. Verse uh, 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The worthiness of the lamb is, uh, is demonstrated and praised there in Revelation chapter 5. The results of the ministry of this 144,000 who point to the lamb, who share the gospel during this time on earth, now show up in the results that you see around the throne. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne. Now, if you're gonna circle a word there in Revelation 7, verse nine, you're gonna circle the word stand and trace it back to the end of Revelation chapter six, aren't you? Who can stand? Well, they're standing on earth and now they're standing in heaven. Here's the answer to that question from those who saw the wrath of God being poured out. They're standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, uh, I'll talk about the white robes and the palm branches in just a second, but commentators note something very interesting here. That when you see a number of people around the throne that nobody can count or number, right on the heels of the sealed and called Jewish people. You hearken back to the book of Genesis. Seven different times in the book of Genesis, it's said that the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be too numerous to count. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham comes out of a battle and he has this one-on-one -on -one with God where God appears to him and tells Abraham, Abraham, your reward is gonna be very great, don't you fear. And Abraham dialogues with God and says, God, what is it that you'll give me 
because I still don't have a kid, and the heir of my family is my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And then God says something back to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, let's do a illustration. Let me give you an illustration of my faithfulness. I want you to come outside with me. And he takes Abraham, and they, they're outside. This is, I imagine, how this goes. He's talking to Abraham here, and he says, look at the stars and count them if you're even able to count them. So shall your offspring be. And then you get to the book of Revelation here and you see an innumerable group of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language. This is the, isn't this the longing of your heart? That God would be an internationally saving God. I mean, what if this text said, and there were seven people, two from Iowa, three from Korea, and one from, you know, Madagascar. You go, gosh, well, I guess those are the only people that make it. But you read this and you go, every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue, here's God saving this innumerable number of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue before the throne to show us that our God is saving a people from every place on this planet where there are people. You know, we called this, I called this message, In Wrath, Remember Mercy. You know where that's from? It's from Habakkuk chapter three. Habakkuk, it's a little three chapter. It's a great chapter, a great book if you wanna see how to argue with God. Because Habakkuk looks at his day and he looks at all the evil going on and then he says, God, what are you doing? Why are you making me see all this evil in my land and all this destruction? Nobody's kind, everybody's mad, everybody's angry, everybody's taking advantage of one another. God, why do I see all this evil? And God goes, sit down, Hab. What's, what's Habakkuk short for? I don't know. What would you do? Hab, Habby? Habby. I would go with Habby. Sit down, Habakkuk. I'm about to do something that is going to make your ears tingle. And he says, I'm going to bring in the Babylonians, and I'm going to take my people into captivity. And then Habakkuk chapter 3 starts, and Habakkuk says, God, I didn't know you were that big to use nations like that. And Habakkuk prays, and he goes, oh, God, in wrath, remember mercy. And the mercy of God here in heaven to demonstrate that God is in a, I mean, at this point in the tribulation, in your last three and a half years, you've seen two billion people die because of war, famine, or pestilence. And in the midst of that, you've seen martyrs killed in Revelation chapter six. And in the, in the midst of that, there are people arriving into the heavenly courts around the throne from every single quarter of humanity. Aren't you glad that heaven's gonna be filled with people who aren't just like you? I mean, maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, gosh, I want them all to be like me. We all like the same stuff. Right, and you see here is that heaven isn't just filled with people who are all kind of like amassed together and we're all beige. But you see people from every, they haven't lost their God-given creative distinctives, but they're all around the throne worshiping God for him and what he has done for them. It's this beautiful picture of God rescuing people from every place on this planet. And now look at how they're described. They're standing before the throne and before the lamb. Don't just read past that. That's not something just anybody gets to do. But here they stand 
before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands. Now let me talk about white robes in a minute, but palm branches are only mentioned one other place in John's writing, and they're mentioned on Palm Sunday when the palm branches are laid down before Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem and everybody says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when palm branches are mentioned in relationship to Jesus, it says that Jesus is who he says he is. That we worship Jesus as the one and true Messiah. The other place palm branches are mentioned is in the book of Leviticus in a feast called the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, Booths. And it was a commemorative feast because as the nation of Israel came out of uh, Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And what they would make as they, you know, Numbers 9 says that every day that they wake up and they would see whether or not the cloud is going to move. And if it didn't move, they stayed. If it moved, they packed and they left. Whether it was a day or three months, they decided they lived their life based on whether or not that cloud was going to move or whether or not it was going to stay. And the memory of this feast is that they go back to a time where God took care of them in the midst of the desert wanderings, okay? So they're holding these palm branches, which uh, remember that these people are coming out of the great tribulation in a time where things are no bueno. And they're holding palm branches to declare that God has been faithful to his word and he got me to the end, okay? Jesus is who he says he is and God has been faithful throughout our time on earth, okay? Now, let's see what they're saying. Uh, what you notice in the book of Revelation, let me, before we get into verse 10, what you notice in the book of Revelation is that worship precedes all of the major acts in this book. That Revelation four and five, we took all this time to talk about praising the one who is seated on the throne and praising the lamb and all of creation and all of the angels and the four living creatures and the elders are throwing their crowns down before the Lamb in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And now again, before we move into the next phase of judgment that comes in the trumpet judgments, you're going to have a moment of worship to where we recognize the goodness and the greatness of God. Look at verse 10. They're crying out with a loud voice. That's the same crying out that the martyrs under the throne did. You even notice how loud everything is in heaven? I mean, I have a loud house. We have six kids who talk a lot. And you know what we have is hardwoods upstairs. Great idea with six kids. But around the throne, there's this, everybody is consumed with worship of God. They can't even help themselves that there's this constant exaltation and praise and excitement and loud praise that's happening in heaven because of God and who he is. Everything in heaven resonates because of the tuning fork of the throne of God. And all of the praise comes back to him. Look at what this group, of, this group says. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Nobody when they get to heaven, is going to go, Jesus, we did it. You understand that? That biblically, salvation, as these people arrive in heaven, they go, salvation is God's plan, is God's idea, is God's work, that he's the one who called and elected and justified and sanctified and glorified, and salvation belongs to him and to who he is. Theologians say it's a monergistic 
Mono means one. Ergo means work. It's a one work salvation. And these people on the other side of their life on earth where they have lost everything stand in the presence of God saying salvation is from God. Salvation is God's idea and God's plan. Nobody in heaven goes, and me. They go, it's to God and to the lamb. He's the one who did the work. Verse 11, these uh, individuals, this multitude, begins the worship song. Because what's now about to move out from that confession, watch this, is everything in heaven. Look at verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne. How many angels? All of them. We found all of them. And they're all around the throne as these, this multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue is praising God for who he is and what the Lamb has done. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, this hymn, this is another sevenfold hymn that you've seen this before in Revelation 4 and 5, but it begins and ends, the only hymn in your Bible that begins and ends with Amen. As these individuals step into eternity, having their, wash, their life washed by the blood of the Lamb, it's as if all of the angelic and raptured church court respond with amen to their confession. And they say amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. That no one can stop themselves. They run out of adjectives because of how great this God is. Peter says that uh, our salvation is something that angels long to look into. That is, all of the angels stand there and watch God's wrath be poured out on earth and God in mercy save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The angels themselves are anticipating and looking into this going, who is this God? And all they can do is worship. Now that's pretty good, right? We could pray and go home. But we got a few more verses. Now, What's going to happen next in this text is a lot like what has happened in Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, as we, there was a loud angel, and the loud angel says, uh, who is worthy to open the scroll? Right? And then it says, it was found that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John does what? You remember? He begins to weep because all of the purposes of God have been brought and no one can bring them to fulfillment. And in this text, John is about to be brought into the drama again. He's about to be invited into understanding what God is doing through the preaching of the blood of the Lamb. Now, look at what it says. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come from? Now, we're going to talk about the white robes in just a second, but the angel asks two questions. Who are they, and where are they coming from? Isn't it great to have an angelic interpreter in the midst of visions in heaven during the tribulation? That's helpful, right? And that's what this angel, or this, uh, this elder is going to do. He's going to help John interpret what's going on. Look at verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know. Always a great way to answer a, uh, somebody who is around the throne. I'm not sure, but I know you know. Real humble. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, the great tribulation is a technical term in your Bible. It's the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, which don't worry about that. We'll, we'll get to that later. It's the last three and a half years where the wrath of God is poured out on humanity. Jesus talks about it, and it, and it talks about being an awful time. Keep your finger there in Revelation 7 and turn back with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, starting here in uh, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, we'll talk about that, don't worry about that. Let the reader understand. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. There's that term. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if, this, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So come back here to Revelation. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, how do they get white robes and what does that mean? Look at what he says there in the remainder of verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? Last time I checked that washing things in blood does not make them white. And it's a, it's a bit of a word play, isn't it? You may think of Isaiah chapter 1 where, where God says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The Hebrews talks about this. If, you, if you've read, you know, in your Old Testament that uh, Hebrews explains the Old Testament sacrificial system and it explains it like this. This is Hebrews 9. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's really the key point that we have here, that these people, as they come out of the tribulation, arguably have lost everything. They're in a time of great famine. They're in a time of economic and political disaster. They're in a time where God's hand of restraint is removed uh, socially, where men begin to kill each other. But there's one thing that these individuals have done, that they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Now, that term begins the next song. You see how the text changes in your Bible? Don't look at me, look at your Bible. You see how it changes? That the text is not, it shifts. It looks like a psalm, doesn't it? Now, what the elder is about to explain is key, and the next phrase is a word, right? The next word is therefore, which means what these people have done in washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb, as they have come to confess that Jesus is who he says he is and that they've received forgiveness of their sins, 
that there's a great promise and a great destination to their choice. That all of us, no matter who we are, are heading toward an eternal destination that is determined solely by what we do with Jesus. You believe that? And on the other side, you're about to see very, very important implications for forgiveness. Now, forgiveness of sin is a great deal, right? That Jesus forgives every thought that I've had. He forgives every single deed that I've done. Paul says in Romans that God will judge the secrets of men on Christ Jesus. Every thought, every word, every deed that I've ever done can be totally forgiven because of Jesus. Now, that's pretty good in and of itself, but it's better than that. Because what you're about to see are the results of what it means to have God as your heavenly father and to be able to stand in the presence of God. And it all comes because of what we believe about Jesus and what he's done for us, okay? Now, watch this. There's three of them that I want to draw your eyes to that become incredibly important for you today. You may feel like this is somewhere out there one day and this is the destination, but these are not only true for you there, they're true for you here because they're true for you when you accept Jesus for who he is and what he has done for you and your sin. Let's look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Well, that's how this text began. Well, how do I get before the throne? Who has the audacity to stand before the throne of God? Are you kidding me? How long do you think you would last in your sin before the throne of God? I would say you wouldn't make it a nanosecond before you are disintegrated. These people are able to face the blast furnace of the holiness and righteousness of God. They're in his presence that you and I have the, we said this at Easter, when Jesus walks out of the tomb and talks to Mary, he says, don't cling to me, Mary, for I am ascending to my God and to your God. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father. That Jesus has won a new relationship for us where we can now be in the very presence of God because we've washed our garments in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, that word shelter is not, um, the word is technically tabernacle. It's the same word that John uses in John chapter one, that the word became flesh and sheltered, among us, tabernacled among us. It means that this is the great promise of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. When the nation of Israel comes out, uh, God tells them that I will dwell with you. You will be my people and I will be your God, that we are in the presence of God. This is the great promise for the Christian, that we didn't make it to God to dwell up there, but God came down here to dwell among us and make us his people. But one thing I want to draw out, not only do we enter into the presence of God, which is great news, that you can come boldly before God when you pray and you, can, you, are, um, um, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, right? But also they serve him day and night. Isn't that interesting that these people have lost everything as they step out of the tribulation and their reward 
is to serve God. The, the word uh, typically refers to how the priests in the Old Testament would go about serving in the tabernacle and in the temple and in the tent. But for Paul, when Paul uses this word, he talks about the inner posture of our heart. He says that we are the circumcision who worship in spirit and in truth. He says to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with my whole heart as does my ancestors. That for the Christian, when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we believe that God lays hold of my whole life and has the authority to direct my life however he will and use me for whatever purposes he might desire, right? So that the great ambition of the Christian is, oh God, use me however you would use me in this season of life. Now, let me, this means that you can have two different people doing the same job with the same responsibilities, and one can be serving themselves, and one can be serving God. So imagine that you're out in our parking lot with a broom, and there's two people who look like they're doing the very same exact thing, but one person is thinking there ought to be somebody who uh, isn't as important as I am doing this kind of work because I have ambitions and I have dreams and I have things that God wants me to do with my life and uh, I can't believe that I'm out here doing this in, in God's great plan of redemption that I'm out here just sweeping the parking lot and we're grumbling and we're mad and we're, listen, I, and let me be honest, I'll be transparent with you. I have had those thoughts when I was working at Panera and making $8 an hour and making the bacon turkey bravo and coming home and smelling like mustard. I remember those times I remember the frustration in the prayers with God where I feel like I have more God to do than this and I'm frustrated because fundamentally it's not me serving God in the place where he's put me. It's that I'm mad that God is not serving my agenda and my plans and my dreams. But what happens when you step into the heavenly courts, it's the honor for of eternity to serve this God. See, the other person who's sweeping the parking lot on this side is going, God, you have put me here for your time and your purposes that I don't get one more breath unless you give it to me. God, would you so use this moment of me doing the mundane thing that I can't see has any eternal significance, whatever. God, would you transform my heart so that I would serve you in this moment and in this place? If you ask that question, because listen, a lot of our life is mundane, isn't it? Uh, like how much time have I spent driving, going places, chewing? You, you know, like, but if you begin to ask this question, God, what do you want me to do here? God, what is, I don't want to go through seasons of my life where I look back and go, I live for me. I want to go through seasons of my life as mundane and as uncertain as they may be and go, God, I, I did the best I could with where I was for your glory and for your namesake. Because the great ambition of these people is to serve God. See, God has left you here for a reason. Do you believe that? He didn't just leave you here to make money and advance your agenda and buy a jet ski and go on vacation and go to school. And those are all contexts even on a jet ski. Those are all contexts in which you have the ability to ask, God, what do you want me to do here? 
Because the gospel is the only thing that is worth your life. It can support the weight of your life, the weight of your mundane moments, the weight of the time where you don't know what God is doing, but you trust him and be obedient in that moment. That the gospel can reorient me. That when Jesus forgives me and lays hold of my life, I go, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to do it, may I be faithful to you and your purposes. You want a great gravestone? Anybody shopping for a gravestone? Before you do, here's what, here's one. Take from Acts. In the book of Acts, it says of David that David served the purposes of the Lord in his generation and fell asleep. What a great gravestone. I did what God wanted me to do as long as he gave me, then I died. That's the ambition of the Christian. God, would you pour me out with all of the gifts that you have given me, and would you use me? See, this allows you to share the gospel with somebody who's directionless and say, God has left you here. God can forgive your sins. God can give you a purpose worth dying for. Because when these people give their life and they step into eternity, it's the great joy of their heart to be around the throne and serving the purposes of God forever. That's pretty good. Not only are sins forgiven, but you can have a purpose for your life. Look at um, verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Now, I don't just need a purpose from God. I need provision from God, right? I need God to, to satisfy the deepest needs in my life. You know what's interesting? When the nation of Israel comes out of the Exodus, uh, the first thing that they deal with, the first thing that makes them start grumbling, I think they're like 20 minutes into the walk and they start going, I'm so thirsty. Did God bring us out into the desert to kill us? Is God among us or not? And the great problem for the people of Israel is not getting them out of Egypt. The main problem for the people of Israel is getting their Egyptian desires out of them. It, it, um, Moses, on the other side of the desert wanderings, he writes Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 is this point where he's teaching this next generation of what it means to follow God. Let me, let me just read it for you. Here's what... Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you'll remember the whole way the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God doesn't make you fast. He lets you hunger. And there's a difference. See, fasting is our confession that, God, there's nothing on this earth that I desire except you. But when God lets you hunger, that's a different story. Because God, in letting you hunger, doesn't do it to embarrass you or to expose you. He does it to educate you. He does it to demonstrate something about him that can only satisfy the deepest needs of your life. Food and water, bread and water are the physical needs of our life, right? And now here, these people step out of the tribulation. They're these tribulation saints who put their hope in Jesus and his sacrifice for them. 
And the promise is deepest satisfaction. Listen, you, you know this. I know this. That there are things that I run to to satisfy the deep hungers of my soul. If, you're, if you struggle with people pleasing, that you run to pleasing people so that your identity and security might be safe in their eyes. If there's sexual desires, you pursue them on your own. That yeah, I like a Christian on Sunday, but I can do sex on my own and I can satisfy the, the deepest desires of my heart to be known and truly loved and vulnerable and still accepted that you have achievement in your workplace that you're looking for to make sure that you are certain that you're all that you want to be and you're still unsatisfied. And it's only the gospel that begins to solve these, this deep uncertainty in our hearts where we can be finally and truly satisfied. Now, now go on to the next part here because it, it continues in verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for hungry, thirsty people? That you, you have the echoes of Psalm 23 here, don't you? That the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by still waters and green pastures, and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, right? And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here's this lamb, the slain one, who takes the hunger and the thirst and the scorching heat and he takes it away. And he, he's their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. What can satisfy the deepest thirst of our soul? Do you know where else living water is mentioned in John's writings? It's mentioned in John 4. You remember the woman at the well? She comes and Jesus goes, I, I can give you water. And she goes, I mean, I'll take some living water. It means I don't have to come back to this well. And there's this exchange between Jesus and this woman where he goes, the water I can give will be a well of water springing up inside. I can satisfy the deepest scorched parts of your heart. And here's Jesus in the gospel promising that he will do that for his people. That's true for you today in Jesus that he can do that now for you if you are hungry and you are thirsty. So they're in the presence. They have a purpose in serving God. They have provision of the deepest needs of their heart. And then you just saw this one here, but he's the shepherd. When you read the pastoral epistles, you know what pastor means? Anybody speak Spanish? En español, como se dice? Shepherd? No? Okay. I'll use my Spanish. It means uh, pastor is the word for shepherd. The pastoral epistles are the shepherding epistles. That he's this good shepherd and he brings them, look at how it ends, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now I just, not only do I stand in the presence of God, not only do I have a purpose to serve him on earth, not only are the deepest needs of my heart satisfied, but I also have someone who will wipe away my tears. It doesn't say that you don't cry as a Christian, right? Are there things that make you weep as a Christian? It says here that he'll wipe them away, which means this is the foretaste of what you see in Revelation chapter 21 
Revelation chapter 21, no crying, no pain, no tears for the former things have passed away. See, we can bring God our struggles to, that we can find and experience true comfort as we live life on this planet and this earth, or as we bring those emotional and spiritual needs to our good shepherd, that he knows them and he weeps with us and he wipes the tears away. Now, do you see why I began the way I did? That this is the destination. But this is true the moment you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. It's the promise that's there for you that you can live life on this planet for how many, whether God gives you 20 minutes or 20 years, you can align your life with the purposes of God to where God can meet you in the, Isaiah 58 says that he will satisfy your desire in the scorched places. What a promise. That he will pastor us and shepherd us and provide for us and protect us all the way to the end. So that the end, the answer to the Revelation 6 question, who can stand? It's only those who have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. See, the gospel is, is far greater than we imagine it to be. We imagine it transactionally. But isn't there more here than just the transaction? This purpose and promise and, and care and shepherding and tenderness and satisfaction and the shade and the God being with us, all of those are realities right now that are true for you. Look, when you share the gospel, you may have to do it in 30 seconds. But it'll take you 3,000 years and more to understand all of who Jesus is for you. See, that's why the gospel is so precious to us as a church. Because Jesus is better and deeper and sweeter and more meaningful and more kind than we ever deserved. And he will be for all eternity into Revelation chapter 7. And this foretaste where he saves these tribulation saints coming out where they have lost everything, that on the other side they realize that they haven't lost anything but they've gained everything in the presence of God into eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what good news this text is. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we minimize the gospel message. That as we look at this text, how simple it is to wash our garments in the blood of the lamb, but how rich the promises of God are on the other side how we see forgiveness and protection and purpose and the intimacy of you being with us and us being in your presence and you wiping away our tears and satisfying us in the scorched areas of our heart. Father, I pray that that would be true here today, that somebody would, would see that perhaps for the first time and understand that and that you would become uh, precious to them, that we uh, would say with the psalmist, on earth is nothing I desire except you. So, Father, reorient us to these truths. Bless us. We thank you for what you've done for us. We worship you. We exalt you. We give thanks and praise and glory and honor and might to you because salvation too belongs to our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.